Hello and welcome to episode four of season two of Guido Talks. This is the 18th episode overall. I hope you're enjoying the series, these weekly roundups of all things Guido. Today we're not joined by Paul Staines, the founder and editor of uh, Guido Forks, as he is somewhere over the Irish Sea right now in an aeroplane. Instead, we are just joined with uh, joined by reporter Christian Calgi today, who's going to talk us through some of the top stories this week. So without further ado, should we dive straight into some of the COVID catastrophes this week? What's been going on? Exactly. We, we've had a, a sort of a triple COVID threat this week, all in the last two days of multiple senior breakings of the rules. And, uh, you know, let's start off with the biggest one, the most egregious breaking of the rules uh, I can, I've seen so far, and that is the SNP uh, MP Margaret Ferrier, uh, who got COVID symptoms last Saturday, got a test on the Sunday, came down to Westminster on the Monday, stayed to debate in the chamber, then went got a positive test result that Monday and then got a train back to Scotland. Uh, I mean, you literally, you would have to work hard to have breached as many COVID regulations as she did. Uh, she has lost the, the whip by the SNP. That is essentially as far as they can go in terms of sanctioning her other than, uh, I don't know, stripping her of party membership. And now we are now with the the ball is in her court essentially as to whether she's gonna do the the basically the honorable thing uh and actually quit as an mp but you know an eighty thousand pay packet uh, it's difficult to let some for some people to let go of that yeah it's interesting since the story broke the snp have been about as on top of it in terms of media management as you could hope that they would be you know nicola sturgeon has come out herself saying that um, she should stand down as an MP and all that sort of stuff. But the interesting thing here is the timeline, in my view, because, of course, um, she got a COVID test result back on the Monday um, and travelled back up to Scotland then. But um, that's, that's her sort of leaving work. Surely she would have informed her whips as to why she was headed back up to Scotland, as to why she needed a proxy vote, as to why she wasn't going to be speaking or voting in person in any of the debates that week. So I, I think it's entirely possible that the SNP had known about this for five days before they acted, and they only acted upon this breaking out into the media. Um, they were certainly, they certainly knew yesterday um, when, when the MP herself put out a statement and sort of acknowledged all of this but i think mm. it's very very interesting the smp have some questions to answer as to when exactly they knew about this and why they only acted once this was out in the public domain uh, yeah as per usual with the smp there is a sort of thin veneer of competent response competent comms but actually you delve a bit deeper and uh, things are not uh, all as they seem. I think we're aware that uh, she informed the party uh, yesterday morning and uh, Ian Blackford came out with some sort of line about them drafting the statement and informing her of the timeline of when it will be made public 
acknowledged that the, the whip had been withdrawn. But even within that time scale, there seems to have been a lot of um, keeping things quiet until the comms operation was all in place and they could look as good as possible. And that does seem which, to which is worrying in, of in, some in and of itself, because surely you'd want to be able to contact trace people as quickly as possible. I mean, if she was milling around the House of Commons, meeting with some potentially quite elderly MPs, it's really important that they get to know they can get their tests, they can start isolating as soon as possible. So all that waiting mm. just for a, just for a veneer of PR seems deeply, deeply cynical. And there are, of course. Uh, a lot of old MPs in the Commons, some are not that bothered about respecting Corona guidelines, as we saw this week with Mr Jeremy Corbyn, uh, <laughs> who uh, was, uh, the sun splashed on this earlier in the week, that he was at a dinner party, clearly breaking the rule of six. It is the latest in a, a long, long line of Corona rule breaking what else would we expect from a lifetime rebel uh it was clearly a breach he's not going to be fined by the police i personally appreciated george eustace's uh, explanation that he proffered it's very conceivable that a, that a socialist of corbyn's kind can't count that high and it may have <laughs> genuinely been a mistake I just love his facial expression in that picture. He's sort of turned around from his chair. He sort of knows that he's a bit in the wrong. He looks a bit guilty there, sitting around a table that was laid out for nine people. Now, he said to The Sun that evening, and it was printed in, in the story, that um, eventually there, there were more people than six at the dinner party. What does he mean as they turned up to sit at the table that was laid out for nine people? I mean, I, at what point do you sort of realise, of course you know who you're going to a dinner party with. This is utterly, utterly ridiculous. But um, it's a shame that he hasn't been fined because, of course, the shadow uh, mental health minister, Rosina Allen Khan, uh, said on the Kay Burley show the, the morning after the story broke in the night, um, that he should be fined. And of course, his brother was fined for helping organise the COVID protest. I, I suppose this sort of stuff just runs in the family. Yeah, you say his facial expression. It reminded me quite a lot of the infamous, uh, I don't think this is a very good idea, Seamus uh, <laughs> yes. clip from back in the early days of the Corbyn administration. But of course, you know, he's no longer leading the opposition. He can't afford a professional spin doctor. So he didn't have a Seamus to help him out in that situation. Sorry, are um, you saying that he had spin doctors helping his image over the last four years? My God, what would it have been like without them? <laughs> <laughs> They've been trying their hardest, Tom. Uh, they, <laughs> uh, and of course, the other, the other person, the third person, uh, was Boris's dad, was Stanley Johnson, who was uh, you know, captured on photograph, not wearing a mask. Conversely, the mirror splashed with that. You had the son attacking Corbyn, you had the mirror attacking the, <laughs> the Johnson yeah. family. Uh, of course, none of this was party political driven. It was all very <laughs> conscientious. Covid enforcement by the press. Do you, know, do you know what? I felt a bit sorry for the uh, political editor of the Mirror, Pippa Carrera, that, that evening because clearly everyone in the in the Mirror's offices were sort of rubbing their hands with glee, thinking, "Brilliant! We've got this awesome scoop. It's going to lead all the pages." The Prime Minister's dad, only to be massively undermined by the much more um, seismic story of the former leader of the Labour Party, rather than just a relation of the Prime Minister. So uh, you do have to feel a bit sorry for the for the Mirror team, sort of being undermined there in terms of the scale of the stories. I perpetually feel sorry for the Mirror editorial team, Tom, and that is not, <laughs> not restricted to this week.
Oh, amazing, amazing. Well, we should probably move on from just sort of who, who broke which coronavirus restriction, because of course, there was debate over those restrictions themselves this week in Parliament, as that Brady Amendment that we were talking about last week was eventually not called by the Speaker. Um, now, this was because, in part, the length of the debate was only 90 minutes, which was a fact that um, really quite annoyed a lot of Conservative backbenchers. Just 90 minutes to debate the renewing of sweeping powers for the executive with barely any scrutiny whatsoever. Well, actually, no scrutiny whatsoever for another six months by the terms of the Coronavirus Act, uh, which is an extraordinary um, secession of power from the legislature to the executive entirely unaccountably without vote without debate so it turned out that there was a little concession granted to those backbench rebels like graham brady um, and like steve baker as matt hancock took to the dispatch box um, at, in, in the midst of that debate and, and, and announced that in future the house would be consulted on measures and may even, if they're very lucky, if the government decides, they might be given a vote. Now, to me, that didn't seem like an extraordinary amount of concession from the government. No, it's, uh, I think it was a concession in the sense that a dictatorship has become slightly more benevolent. Uh, it, seemed to, <laughs> it seemed to quell a lot of the rebellion because I think at the end of the day, uh, a lot of those uh, Tory signatories of the amendment we're looking for a bit of a symbolic concession anyway. They just wanted to, to remind the government that if necessary, there is a lot of uh, tension on the backbenches and there is the possibility of a government defeat if push came to shove. There was this concession. I think because of the sheer numbers, it's not just a, um, you know, a Hancock, uh, you know, where possible in the vague sense. I think we probably will see an increasing uh, consultation of Parliament when these rules uh, are being talked about. Uh, but uh, yes, ultimately, it, it sort of both sides won, both sides lost, <laughs> politics moves <laughs> and, on. And of course, this just sets it up for an even bigger clash of forces when the government does put forward a new regulation that isn't consulted or voted on by the House. That is going to be an almighty row. So I think purely in, in, in media management and party management terms, the government is in a bit of a bind here and will have to really bring this stuff before the House, even though the sort of weasel words of the health secretary, oh, we'll do it where possible. I mean, that's not very clearly defined. It's, it's not tight enough in my view, but perhaps the media pressure will, will uh, hopefully bring that to account. Mm, I'm trying to think of a segue, Tom. <laughs> Can't think of one. Let's talk about Quangus. You know what? I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to cut any of this out. We're just going to leave this in. Let's no, talk about Quangos. Uh, let's talk about Quangos. And of course, uh, last weekend we had the, uh, the 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 bombshell news. It just it, it was it it hacked off all the right people, uh, thanks to the Sunday Times that Boris is planning on. Uh, installing Charles Moore and uh, Dacre uh, in the, you know, the top tier of British broadcasting uh, quangos in the chairman of BBC and the head of Ofcom. 
and it, uh, it ticked all the right boxes. The right were, you know, jubilant. The left were commiserating the death of democracy and freedom of the press. And uh, <laughs> the reality is uh, that uh, Labour have been packing quangos full of their people for, uh, I think we worked out this year, basically 23 years. Um, people like Adam Bolton were, were flippantly rejecting the notion that Labour lackeys have been running, you know, so many of the shows behind the scenes. And we went back and we saw that basically the last year of the major government, over half, 57% of political appointees had Tory allegiances versus 32% of Labour. Blair then came to power and we have had two decades of majority Labour appointments. We had over a decade, we had 97 to 2012 of almost consistently over 70% of appointees coming from Labour, uh, you know, affiliated people. We had uh, the, the chairman of the BBC, I think, gave £50,000 to Labour and was then appointed chairman of the BBC. Can you imagine the outrage if the same had happened uh, with the Tories? And it's just a consistent, you know, hypocrisy. You know, they don't care when the left do it. It's the mm. end of democracy when the right do it. You know, it's interesting. I think when you look at sort of the senior journalists who are saying this stuff, I mean, obviously, you're going to have the partisan people, you know, the, the sort of the left wing campaigners on Twitter are always going to oppose pretty much any appointment this government makes. But what I find is interesting is that some of those uh, more senior people in the media who were perhaps quite close to movers and shakers um, in the Blair world, in the sort of new Labour world, they went to those same dinner parties, they mixed with those same people in number 10, who now feel a bit ostracised from the new regime like they're not sort of in there and, and so they're they're much more willing to sort of look over what their pals do and and much more um keen to, to scrutinize what this government does when it's basically exactly the same thing that's been happening as you say for decades and decades and decades um and i'm i'm personally think that, that sort of the the, the charles moore stuff specifically has been blown up out of all proportion because of course this guy is going to be the well it's it suggested that charles moore will be the um chairman of the board now that's not someone who sort of makes the day-to-day -day running decisions of the bbc it's the person who holds the bbc accountable who 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 holds them up to their promise of impartiality and all, all sorts of other things so of course you want someone who over the years has been skeptical of the work the bbc has done to be holding them to account if you had someone who said everything is perfect at the bbc everything's wonderful everything's brilliant they're not going to be able to hold the bbc to account at all so of course you need someone who's more skeptical at the top there i mean this this to me makes a great deal of sense particularly commercially for the organization and it's going to need to reform over the next few years, especially leading mm. up to the next charter review. Um, mm. And but, especially, of course, because the right now has a, another option that's about to come into the fore, doesn't it? Yeah, this is, um, I assume you're referring to GB News, which is the Absolutely. sort of, um, the one of the two major offerings that we might see 
in uh in the next uh year or so popping up onto our tv channel lists and screens um gb news is the uh organization spearheaded by robbie gibb the um former uh bbc bod who moved into number 10 under theresa may and has now um is now sort of back in the commercial world setting up gb news and and, and this week or was it at the end of last week that andrew neil um, was announced would be would be taking on the chairmanship of it and of course mm. that gives it a massive um, amount of credibility in the broadcasting world because of course Andrew Neil is, is uh, seen across the spectrum to be very fair very balanced and, and basically a titan of broadcasting and it's interesting how um, during elections and, and whatever people on the left and on the right are just as happy to share his interviews and his um, forensic analysis, for want of a better word, if, if, if forensic isn't a word that has been completely devalued by Keir Starmer in recent months. Um, but no, so, so, so Andrew Neil uh, this week appeared on Sky to discuss um, sort of what, what he thinks GB News is going to be. And of course, the lazy assumption is, oh, this is just going to be a shock jock um fox news clone and actually it seems like it's going to be a lot more nuanced than this and um andrew neil was sort of describing how it's going to sit in that space that perhaps exists between the media establishment in the uk as it is currently and fox news so not 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 out there but having sort of personality-led, respected um, uh, interest journalism that, that, that isn't rolling news, but is sort of segment, segment. You, you sort of go and, 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 and tune into the, the, the presenter that, that you like the, the sound of or, or that you like the show of. Um, and, and that sort of segmented way of delivering it seems to work quite well in America and they're expecting it works quite well over here and, and, and it, it sounds like they're raising something like 60 million pounds for it which is a uh, not a bad amount of money if you want to kick off a serious uh, new news channel. No I'm sure they'll do very well even against such tough competition from Guido Talks. <laughs> we, we, we might be benevolent yeah. enough to let them have a slice of our market pie. Uh, yeah, or indeed our massive budget and our, our famously sound microphone technological and broadband prowess. Just look at the set behind me. Money cannot <laughs> buy these views. Uh, God, you need to describe this for the people listening on the on the podcast. This is well, uh, well, is it car park uh, you're sitting in. <laughs> it's the bleakest view. Uh, we've <laughs> stuck the largest television ever invented in front of it so we don't have to look at it but yes we we moved offices this week and uh, we have a wonderful new office only blighted by 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 the view of the second floor of a multi-story car park love it absolutely <laughs> wonderful um shall we get back to politics um, yeah absolutely because absolutely. because of course um this week it wasn't only covid legislation that was controversial in the commons it was also that classic age-old deeply controversial internal market bill that we've spoken about before on this podcast now um someone sort of almost led a charge against it this week uh who was that Calgi? uh my old friend theresa may uh, is now is now the rebel. Her and her and Steve Baker on different issues, admittedly, but they are the rebel leaders 
of the Tory backbenches. And uh, she was, uh, well, she did in the end rebel in the form of abstaining against a three-line whip. Uh, and this was the third reading of the Internal Market Bill. So it has now cleared all the stages of the Commons. It's going on to the Lords. We'll see how it does there. Um, but it eventually passed with a fairly sizable, I think, a, a, an over 80 majority, so larger than the Conservatives' nominal majority. Uh, and she was nowhere to be seen, uh, conveniently. Uh, and uh, the, the, the theatrics faded away. In the end, the rebellion fizzled out. Um, yes, it seemed like uh, a, a decent number of Conservatives abstained, but ultimately the, the mathematics of the House was such that uh, it passed with an 84 majority, which means that now the Internal Market Bill has cleared uh, all three stages of the Commons and it's on to the Lords. Now, depending on who you talk to in Parliament, some people think that, okay, the Lords will try and amend it, it'll be pinged back, and then the Commons will pass it again with a stonking majority, and that moral force will send it through the Upper House. Talking to some people in senior positions in the House of Lords, they don't think it would be that easy, and the government will have to uh, get a bit more creative if it wants to force it through the Upper House to become uh, law in time for Brexit, if indeed there is no deal, because of course, the, uh, the provisions within this bill would only really matter, would only be technically breaking international law potentially, if there was no deal. And the sounds are that a deal is advancing and that we might well, in a week or two, be, be nearer that place. Um, so, so that's something to keep an ear to the ground about. However, this, all of this didn't stop the EU launching legal action against the UK this week for passing the internal market bill through the Commons. Of course, it's not law yet. It still needs to clear the upper house. But no, the, the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, launched this sort of, it send, said that she was um, sending a letter of formal notice to the United Kingdom about uh, this potential breach in EU law. And this was picked up by um, loads and loads of news outlets. It was shown into a big thing. It was a big sort of event where Ursula von der Leyen stood in front of a lectern and announced it in a grandiose way. But of course, Ursula von der Leyen didn't announce the 30-odd breaches of EU law that Germany made this year, or the 40-odd that Italy did. Now, it, it turns out that this is actually a very common process for the Commission to send these legal letters to different countries. We put up a, a graph on the website this week that shows that actually there are plenty of countries that are ahead of the UK in terms of breaches and that the UK tends to be actually one of the most law-abiding in the EU. So all of these pieces that were that were sort of criticising the UK and saying, isn't it extraordinary that the EU has had to send this letter that's uh, had to think about starting these proceedings? Well, actually, if you look about, if you look at the ongoing proceedings, there are about 800, 800 in any given year, an average of 30 per member state. And, and obvious, for obvious reasons, this one gets picked up and carried far and wide across the media. But put in context, it doesn't seem that, that major. No, I, I, was, um, I, I was amazed to, to, to see this uh, stat that there are 800 open infringement cases against EU member states. And if anything, it, it really 
the 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 amount that this particular one was amped up back home just shows uh, what good participants how well behaved we have been and if anything you know you look at uh, I think Germany, according to, to this graph, has uh, 14 more infringements than the UK does. I wish we'd, I wish we'd been a bit more rebellious over the years. If, they, if no. there's all this scope to, to break these rules and still be a member of the EU, I think we should. I think we well, this should is, do you know what? I remember, I remember during the referendum, actually quite a lot of Conservative um, Remainers and indeed Labour Party Remainers um, were, were saying that oh no these rules don't really hamper us if you look at what Germany does on state aid for example oh they just bend the rules slightly they more liberally interpret them oh breaking the rules was fine for them them when they were arguing to stay in the European Union but now people are arguing to come out of the European Union they can't apply the same logic I mean come on we can see the hypocrisy here it's very very clear <laughs> But I think we should probably leave that sort of uh, Brexit argument um, there for now. Uh, I'm sure it is one that we'll come back to as we have been since 2015 on Guido Fawkes. Um, <laughs> but, but there's been a spat that has been covering the, the pixels of Guido uh, for the last uh, week and a bit really in the trade department. Um, between two of the sassiest members of this cabinet and shadow cabinet, <laughs> uh, Liz Truss and Emily Thornbury, who've been having a bit of a war of words. And this all started because um, Liz Truss um, didn't declare some meetings with the IEA and then, and then she did declare them and there was some confusion over whether they were personal or departmental and whether they should have been declared and where. And it was all very sort of process-led. And anyway, they ended up declared but that didn't stop Emily Thornbury writing a, a, a sort of a, a sassy letter to Liz Truss uh, over that transparency uh, issue to which Liz Truss um, replied saying yes they had been declared but why hasn't the Labour Party declared its meetings with the media over for the last four years as it, as it promised to do under Ed Miliband as a result of the Leveson inquiry and um, now that sassy reply somehow made its way to the pixels of Guido Fawkes. And, and that set off a chain reaction of, um, of Emily <laughs> Thornbury then complaining that a letter had ended up in the free press. So, so we ran that as well. And then subsequent letters came out where, where I think one of, the, one of the spads, one of the special advisors for Liz Truss has now been um, um, called out by Emily Thornbury saying, oh, this, this special advisor has, has broken the rules in terms of acting party political. Now, of course, Emily Thornbury's never been in government, so I, I can understand why she might not know the rules about special advisors, being that she, she's never been in government, so she's never had one. Um, but the Trade Department are very adamant that no one's broken any rules, so they've been sending incredibly sassy back-and-forth messages um, to the extent that Emily Thornbury, in her most recent reply, just ended up CCing in Guido on the email. Just cut out the middleman. Out the middleman, exactly. As well as the Secretary of State. I <laughs> wish that far more um, shadow cabinet and cabinet ministers would do this. It would save us a lot of time. I mean, I say, we were moving offices this week. I was more than happy to just go over and work from Emily Thornbury's office because <laughs> uh, it's, it's just been a week of her getting you know it's it's almost like it's it's almost like um a, a little sibling who you who you know 
exactly how to annoy and and you just keep on doing it and they keep on getting more annoyed and every time she sent a letter complaining that it was ending up on Gino Forks we ran it <laughs> and then she sent another one and we ran it again amazing uh, so I, really I just love how I'm... she ended up cc'ing us because it was the ultimate sort of bitchy move I'm, i've got a deep <laughs> soft spot for emily thornbury i think she's marvelous she's a great um entertaining presence and i was worried when she dropped out or she didn't quite get enough votes in the labor leadership election to advance to the to the actual sort of debate campaign stage um and i was deeply disappointed about that because i think she's one of the best performers at the dispatch box she's always um sort of got this sort of gravitas that i think people like Keir Starmer and certainly Jeremy Corbyn quite lack um I mean I don't agree with her politics at all but I think as a as a sheer force of personality she's quite a good thing to have in the House of Commons she's she's great she's great and and when Covid's over you know by all means Emily I will buy you a couple of drinks for the wonderful work you have done for our site this week yes as long as you you cc us in some more departmental emails that'd be great (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that just about rounds up everything that um, that has been sort of uh, the most exciting things on the site this week, the most read, the most shared, the most interesting. So thank you for sticking with us for this episode of Guido Talks. I hope you'll see us next week. We, of course, won't see you because we're staring into camera lenses. This is how this sort of thing works. It's not two-way. But do write in if you want to. Our email is on the site. And apart from that, tune in next week. Bye. Bye-bye.